Hello. Amen. Well, I understand that today is picnic day, and so I will endeavor my best to not be long-winded. I, I do promise that I will endeavor as best I can. Uh, thankfully, I only have a few things to say about our passage uh, today from what, what I see in there, but you know, we've been going through a series uh, called Rebuild, and we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's a moment in the nation's history where they've come back from exile in, uh, you know, further up and over <laughs> east um, in uh, Babylon and Persia, and they've come back in uh, this guy named Nehemiah, who actually was living in Persia, he got this burden for his people. And um, after receiving news about kind of the destitute state that uh, Jerusalem was in, the interesting thing about Jerusalem is that um, what really defined Jerusalem as a place, it wasn't just the wall, although that was what was primarily in ruin. Um, it was really that that was the place where ultimately God's presence, His glory dwelled. Um, that was where His majesty kind of radiated from. That was their perspective because that's where the temple had been and was at that time. Um, but I, before we go into all of that, that's just kind of giving you a context for that's the series we're in. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about, uh, the title is Form or Formed, and it's really talking about the organizing of the community. Our main passage is going to be Nehemiah 7, uh, and the big idea, uh, it's a working big idea. Um, it was kind of hard to pin one down particularly, but I would submit to you that God's people are formed around and by worship. God's people are formed around and by worship. So before we go there, I want to go <clears throat> to the book of Genesis. I was, um, I was meeting with some guys this week, and we were reading uh, Genesis 3 and 4, and I'm not trying to break. I've read through Genesis probably more times than somebody who finds a Gideon's Bible in the in, like, I've just, I've read through Genesis a whole bunch of times, and it, it was interesting to me. I was reminded again, uh, so in Genesis chapter 4, it's talking about Cain and Abel and, you know, the offspring of, uh, of Adam and Eve and kind of the fallout that comes from there. And in verse 25, it says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying... God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, what's really interesting about that, that very last sentence there, at that time, people called on the name of the Lord, is that up until that point in history, since the fall, people weren't calling on God's name. They were kind of living in the fallout of sin. And then there came this point where in the middle of their mess, they called 
on the name of God. It would be like if you were in trouble and you were calling on your dad. Assuming, you know, in all perfect scenarios, right, that your dad is, is a positive form of reference where uh, that role and that figure in your life is someone who protects you, who loves you, who is providing for you, who is there for you, um, which is really all the things that God had proved himself to be to Adam and Eve at that point. Why I want to start here at that call on the name of the Lord phrase is that that is the first time in Scripture that you see worship take place. That this family that traces all the way back to Adam and Eve, this is a moment when their family was somehow defined apart from those who were not calling on the name of the Lord. And what's interesting, you might notice in your Bibles, there's the, the word Lord in all capital letters. Um, this is my favorite thing to talk about uh, because it's such a cool editorial thing. You know me, the English major. Um, if you were to look at, you know, the, the preface to your Bibles, they give you editorial notes about how to, how to read certain parts. And they make a note there that the word Lord, um, there's a couple of words for Lord in the Hebrew language, and that word particularly in all caps is specific to God's name, God's personal name, the name that His people know Him by. It's a unique name that is only for Him. It's set apart from just the generic talking about God. Uh, this is specific because this is a name that God's people would know. And so it's fascinating that when Moses was writing what God was telling him, this was a moment where people called on God's name. Not just saying God, but Yahweh. The covenant-making, the promise-making and keeping God. The God who saves. And so it's fascinating about that. Now, we're not going to turn there, but as God's people progress through their nation's history, um, as, as they keep going, um, there comes a point where they are slaves in Egypt. God delivers them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And when they are in the wilderness, you have these 12 tribes of thousands upon thousands of people, and they need to be organized because they're a hot mess coming out of Egypt. And so God in, in Exodus, uh, I don't have the exact chapter and verse, but God gives the details about how they are to organize themselves in their camps by tribe. What's fascinating about that organization is that right there in the middle of the camp, you have three tribes to the north, three tribes to the west, south, and east, right? And right there in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle. That is the place where people would come to worship. That was the place where they would bring their offerings and their sacrifices to. And the thing that defined the tabernacle is really God's presence because, you know, you had different pieces of furniture that, that represent different things, but in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, that is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and that is where God's literal manifest presence rested among the people. 
What's fascinating about that is that for the people wandering through the wilderness at God's leading, His presence in worship defined their community. And everything that they did, everything was organized around this. Even when they would break camp, they would have to be organized in, in relation to the moving of the tabernacle. Fascinating. And so God's people are formed around and by worship. Really, we all are formed by worship, whether we realize it or not. Um, you know, in the fall and winter time that we're coming up against, a lot of us tend to be into sports, or at least we aspire to be into sports. And so, as an example, you know, uh, uh, football games happen on a Sunday afternoon. And sometimes, some of us are watching the clock saying, how long is this preacher going to preach? I'd really like to go make that opening kickoff and not have to watch the replay. It'd be really nice. Um, I say all that because, you know, for us, we, we worship something. We are going to worship something in our lives. And the truth is, it's a universal truth whether you subscribe to the Christian faith or not. You become what you worship you are formed by those things that you worship. And the word worship just means that you are ascribing worth to this object, this, you know, whether it's a person, place, or thing, this object more than yourself. You recognize some value in that compared to yourself. And for God's people, even tracing all the way back to Adam and Eve, they recognize something different about their God that was different from all the other gods and goddesses in all the, the regions around them. The only problem was they forgot. And so in the book of Judges, you see time after time where they are tripping up again and again, where they'll repent and they'll commit themselves to the Lord and God will save them and then they'll fall right back in to their pattern and habit of sin. And what is interesting is that eventually they form as a people. They act, you know, they're not just these tribes kind of, you know, like the state of Washington and the state of Oregon just kind of doing their own thing, but they actually organize. These tribes of Israel organize themselves into a country, and then they say, we want a king even though God was supposed to be their king. And uh, the prophet Samuel was really discouraged by this because he was so devoted to the Lord and devoted his life to worship that he's like, people, don't you realize what you're asking? And they didn't care and they wanted to pursue it anyway. So God gave them a king uh, named Saul and it didn't work out too good. He was something else, to say the least. But there was a guy named David out in the fields. He was the youngest of, you know, a bunch of brothers. And God called that kid out of the fields. And the unique thing about David, among all the people in the Old Testament, even the whole Bible, is that he is a unique person where God says of him, he was a man after my own heart. 
even though David was not perfect, he had his own, own dealings that he had to make right with the Lord. But the thing that defined David was worship, hands down. So much so that at the time of David, you had, so remember that tabernacle I was talking about, center of the camp? Well, once they settled in the land, they had to figure out a place to put the tabernacle because that was still where they would go to worship God. And so they had put that at a location at Shiloh, and uh, that's where, you know, the priests would go and minister and all of that. And David, he was so convicted when he became king. He said, I can't do this on my own. I need God's presence with me. And so he took, remember that holy of holies place that should just be in the tabernacle and is separated by like three layers of separation because God is so holy and so good. David, he had them move the Ark of the Covenant right to the top of Mount Zion, and people would go and worship the Lord there, and they'd have lots of music and lots of dancing and singing and, and you know, the proclaiming of God's Word. It was incredible. And that was a glimpse of that connection that we have with the Lord. And that was something where, for David, he was really, as a leader, hearkening the people, saying, people, we need to worship. So long have we just been worshiping our own way. We need God to define us. We need to be formed by him, not just our own ideas, not just whatever we think is right in our own eyes. We need God at the center of it all. And so the capital city of Jerusalem that David had made the capital at that time, he said, okay, we're going to build this temple. And uh, the only problem was David was a warrior and he had a lot of blood on his hands. And so God said, you can't uh, thank you for thinking of me and wanting to build me this house, but you, you can't build me this house. You got too much blood on your hands. And so um, but your son Solomon, he's going to build this house. And so David prepared the way, and they built the temple. And I'm summarizing here. And so you see this big, huge story arc throughout the Old Testament histories of how important worship was. Now, with how important worship was, you would think the people would be okay at this point. The only problem was Solomon, he loved the ladies from all different flavors and kinds and from all over. And God had made really clear in the Old Testament law, which Solomon knew, hey, don't make treaties with these other people. Don't marry foreign women. They're going to lead your heart away from me, which is to say they're going to cause you to worship someone else other than the one true God, Yahweh, the, the God of God's people. And so... He had his wives who wanted temples made to their gods, and there you can see the, the nation crumbling because their worship was led off-centered by other gods and other deities and other things. So that eventually, over a couple hundred years, led to God kicking the people out and letting the Babylonians and having them conquer the people and exile them away 
from the promised land on like a perma <laughs> timeout. <laughs> Just get out of here. This is your consequence. And God had sent prophet after prophet to say, I'm warning you like a good dad. I'm warning you this is going to happen. I don't want it to happen, but you're forcing my hand on this. And eventually God had the people removed from the land and left just a remnant. And what is interesting about that is it all came back to worship. Now, what's fascinating, too, is we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and um, there's a reason for why I chose this particular book, but really with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra came before Nehemiah, um, but the effort that Ezra had that he responded to was God had placed on the king of Persia's heart and mind in a dream that, hey, I need my house rebuilt. I found this on the web. <laughs> Silence, Siri. <laughs> there we go. That's what I get for having my, my Apple Watch on my hand. Okay. Be gone. Uh, I don't know. No, that was, that was definitely Siri. But anyway, so God had laid it on this pagan king's heart that God, the Hebrew God, needed his house rebuilt. And so Ezra, he raised his hand. He was a priest um, and was, you know, in exile. And he responded to the call, and he led the initiative to go and rebuild the temple and to restore the house of worship. In the way that you look at the histories, Ezra and Nehemiah are like two sides of one coin. Um, it's kind of like, I was trying to think of what this would be like. Um, how many Lord of the Rings fans do we have in here? Okay, I see your hands. Um, okay, if you don't like it, that's okay. Really, the story itself has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. There, there's this point where there's this one main character who's writing down all his adventures and all of his story, and then he passes it along to his nephew and says, now you have something to write. It's kind of like that with Ezra and Nehemiah, where you have Ezra detailing all that God had brought him through, and then Nehemiah is the writing out what God had brought him through. And you see it kind of within this whole season of restoration. Now, we're talking about worship. God's people are formed around and by worship. And so let's go ahead and let's go to Nehemiah chapter 7. There's a lot of names to read. Um, forgive me if I butcher them, you Hebrew scholars out there. All right, Ezra, uh, not Ezra, Nehemiah, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Okay, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brothers Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. 
also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at the, their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, uh, Rehemiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nehum, and Baana. The list of the men of Israel, the descendants of Perosh, 2,172. Of Shephatiah, 372. Of Era, 652. Of Pehoth, Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. Of Elam, 1,254. Of Zetu, 845. Of Zekai, 760. Of Benui, 648. Of Bibai, 628. Of Asgad, 2,322. Of Adonikam, 667. Of Bigvi, 2,067. Of Aden, 655. Of Ater, through Hezekiah, 98. Of Hashum, 328. Of Bezai, 324. Of Harif, 112. Of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Natopha, 188. Of Anathoth, 128. Of Beth Asmaveth, 42. Of Kiriath Jerem, Kephira, and Beeroth, 743. Of Ramah and Geba, 621. Of Michmash, 122. Of Bethel and Ai, 123. Of the other Nebo, 52. Of the other Elam, 1,254. Of Harem, 320. Of Jericho, 345. Of Lod, Hated, and Ono, Ono, 721. Of Senea, 3,930. The priests, the descendants of Jediah through the family of Joshua, of Emer, uh, oh, sorry, 973. Of Emer, 1,052. Of Pesher, 1,247. Of Harem, 1,017. The Levites, the descendants of Joshua through Cadmiel through the line of Hodaviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalum, Ater, Talmon, Akub, Hadatai, Hattah, and Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hasufa, Tabaoth, Kiros, Sia, Padon, Labana, Hagaba, Shalmai, Hanan, Giddel, Geher, Riaiah, and the rest. The descendants of the servants of Solomon. Here we go. Y'all, I love you. You can read those on your own. Here we go. 
the descendants of <laughs> Sotai, <laughs> my lord, uh, Sophereth, Perida, Jaela, Darkon, Giddel, Shephatiah, uh, Haddle, Pachareth, Hasabim, <laughs> my lord, and Amon, the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. I feel like we read all those names. The following came up from the towns of Tel Mila, Tel Harsha, Kirib, Aden, and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Delaiah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, 642, and from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz, and Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. Uh, the whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 245 male and female singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys, those stubborn donkeys. Some of the heads of the families contributed to their work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 bowls, and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of families gave to the treasury for the work 2,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minus of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 garments for priests, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Praise God. Okay. Now, I will not always read lists of names, but one of the things that uh, we've done this before, and I just want to make a brief note of the names. There were a lot of names in there, names that mean absolutely nothing to us. I don't know them personally, neither do you. Um, the point is that the reason I like to read the names, even in my own devotional Bible reading, even though I don't get a whole lot of, out of it most of the time, is that God knows my name, and God knows your name. And, you know, every number that was mentioned there, because thank God they put them into groups, <laughs> and we didn't have to read all those, you know, thousands of names, but every number has a name, and every name has a story, and every story has a future that speaks to the wonder and the hope of redemption bringing us into God's family and organizing us into his people. And so as, as cumbersome and, uh, you know, and as hard and difficult as it is to read some of those names, I think it's valuable at times because God knows your name and mine. Now, what's interesting is that these are the people who had returned from exile. So God just like in a similar way he had led the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he also um, 
not in dramatic a fashion, but he also led the people out of exile back to the land and called the people back to the promised land. And these are the people who responded. These are the people who wanted to go home and live in the place that God had promised their ancestors. What is another observation about this passage is that um, from the start, uh, Nehemiah, he is organizing by starting at the top. And he starts by uh, delegating responsibility to his brothers Hananiah and Hananiah. Um, and these were people, uh, there were two qualities. One, they had integrity. That's always good, especially as we've read about some of their officials that they had in leadership before <laughs> who were not treating the people well at all. Um, these people were, were men of integrity who were going to uphold people to God's law and God's standard. But not only that, you have this phrase, and I love it because it's so strange in our American thought and everything, uh, in verse 2, 7 verse 2, and feared God more than most people do. That means they weren't perfect at it, but they did fear God. And that phrase, it kind of, it rubs against our, our 21st century mindset, does it not? Where it's like, why would I have to fear God? Well, because he's God and you're not, and neither am I. And um, the interesting thing about Hanani as a governor is he is someone who made worship a priority. He's someone who said, you know what? God is God and I am not, and I'm going to live my life in light of that dynamic. I am going to be formed by and around that dynamic that I am going to worship the Lord. And he is going to be the one who I place the most worth and value on, not all these other people. Now, within that, why we're talking about worship and formation is that in that whole list of names <laughs> and groupings, right there in the middle, uh, I think this is the actual record from Ezra, by the way. Right there in the middle, Nehemiah records the priests and, and the people who were going to be the ones who would be facilitating the worship for the people. And why that's important. At, at, because you can see here in this list of exiles and even, you know, where there's some people who had a claim on certain ancestry and they said, well, we don't have a record of that, so we're not going to fudge it. We're going to decide to make sure that we make this as black and white and clear as possible that this family has ancestral ties to this and this family does not. But because you say you do, um, after all that provision is made, then yeah, you can, with discernment from the high priest, you can maybe participate in some of the Levitical things. So for us, what does this have to do for us today? In this season of rebuilding and reforming our church, 
after a season where we have been just kind of beat down by culture or by uh, just circumstance because of, you know, everybody's favorite topic of COVID um, that I'm probably going to get flagged on Facebook for even mentioning. <laughs> um, you know, because of all of that, we are in a season of reforming and rebuilding. And friends, we have to start with worship. We have to start with the priority of worship. That it might be all well and good to have, you know, a well-maintained wall around us that, you know, speaks to the glory of God, and it's so good. And we have these, you know, walls of this church building around us. It is so, it is such a blessing that we have that. But if we don't worship, if we don't make worship a priority, then what really distinguishes us from anybody else in the world? Not a whole lot, other than we like to come here as opposed to any other place, like going to the, the, the local lodge thing or maybe the bowling alley if it ever got back up and running, which, pray for that bowling alley. I would love to bowl again, get my bowling on, but what really distinguishes us? It's worship, because we are formed, God's people are formed around and by worship. Worship in and of itself, that's not what saves us. God is who saves us. But worship is that mysterious, beautiful, wonderful practice where we get to interact with the divine and we get to be changed by his glory. And that is what defines us and that is what is going to ultimately give God the glory that he deserves as people who are called after his name, that we would then be giving him that glory and people would get to see a glimpse of him through our lives. So with that, let's pray.